0: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Both this week and next, we're going to be talking a bit about education. Oscar Wilde said you could never be overdressed or overeducated, But in his day, people didn't like to wear black tie without the tie and white trainers with absolutely anything at all. And he probably never found himself being served by a waiter with two PhDs. In Victorian times, only a tiny fraction of the population had degrees but in most rich countries today at least a third of the adult population has graduated from university and many of those heavily credentialed workers feel distinctly underemployed. Overeducation is a particular problem for Greece, it turns out, a country you'd think already had its fair share of economic challenges to deal with. We have a report from our Europe economy reporter Jeanette Newman on that in a moment. We'll also have an update from the annual gathering of the economist Great and Good at the American Economic Association. But first, you'll remember we ended 2019 rather less worried about trade wars. Now two weeks into 2020 there's been fear of a real war breaking out in the Middle East thanks to US action on Iran. Ziad Daoud, our chief Middle East economist, has been sitting in Dubai thinking about the economic impact of all this. Ziad, thanks for joining us. In the past week, we've seen a very muted market reaction to what could be a major ratcheting up of tension in the region. Markets haven't moved much, and although the oil price did rise a bit at first, I see it's now below where it was at the start of the year. Do you think this calm reaction is justified? Maybe you should remind us what's at stake economically in the region, what it might mean for the global economy and oil supplies if things take another negative turn.
1: The market reaction has been muted. So basically, financial markets currently expect oil prices to revert to an average of $65 per barrel in 2020. So they expect any geopolitical tensions to uh, recede and any supply disruption to be temporary. Are they right? Well, potentially there are certain sources and scenarios in which markets could be surprised by a longer lasting uh, supply disruption. We identify three basically. The first one, is the potential of U.S. sanctions on Iraq. Iraq is OPEC's second largest producer. Uh, it produces 4.7 million barrels of oil a day, and U.S. sanctions on Iraq that could prevent the export of Iraqi oil uh, could lead to uh, much higher oil prices. That's not currently priced in, in the market. The second potential source of risk is attacks on, on oil facilities in the Gulf by Iran. We've seen an attack on Saudi Aramco last September, which took... of global oil supply off market immediately. Uh, Saudi Arabia was able to restore that very quickly, but we can imagine a scenario in which the damage is longer lasting. And finally, we could also envisage a scenario in which oil trade routes in the Gulf might be disrupted. We have 20% of global oil supply goes through the Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. And if, if there is an escalation, in geopolitical tensions, if there are attacks on oil tankers in in, in that area, then that could surprise markets with a much higher oil price because simply the amount of barrels of oil at risk are very large.
0: I guess what it, I mean, we're used to thinking, certainly, you know, in, in the old days, sp- spike in oil prices, I mean, famously in the 70s, but also since then, you know, really had a, a devastating impact on the global economy. Um, I mean, one of the things I was struck by in the research that you've done and uh, and our chief uh, emir economist, Jamie Rush, is that you know, the impact of a big oil price rise is not like it was. I mean, it, not... For, for a number of reasons, I guess. But we, shouldn't, we don't fear it in quite the same way, do we?
1: No, we don't at all. What was $100 oil price in 20, 2010 and 2011 would not feel like a $100 oil price today. It would feel more like a, a $76 uh, oil price. And that's simply because the, um, you know, over time, the prices of other goods and services have gone up. So the real value of $100 barrel of oil is is less than that. Also, because of energy efficiency, we need less oil to produce each unit of global GDP. And because of that, the impact on the global economy of a spike in oil prices is also less significant now. But also, we've seen a structural shift in the oil market. The world's largest economy, the U.S., is producing a lot more oil these days. A spike in oil prices tends to shift income from oil exporters to oil importers, The world's largest economy the U.S. has is producing more oil and therefore uh, the impact of higher oil prices is less adverse in the global economy uh, because it's less adverse on on the U.S. So all of these factors, you put all of these factors together, if you get an increase of nominal oil prices from $70, say, to $100, the impact on global growth is something like 20 to 30 basis points by the beginning of 2022. So it's, it's, it's quite muted, it's not incredibly significant as we've had in in pre
0: so if the world was going to grow 3%, it might grow 27 28 Although I guess we we could guarantee that people would still complain bitterly about the prices they were paying at the pump. Ziad, I think we'll probably end up talking about this again and Cephanomics in 2020. It's certainly a hell of a year for Saudi Arabia to be leading the G20 summit um, later on in the year. I wonder how, how that meeting will go down, or even if it happens, if uh, tensions continue to be so... Uh, so, um, hi. But uh, until then, Ziad Daud, thanks very much. Thank you. Now, on to Greece. It's no longer in economic freefall, but it's still living with the legacy of the financial crisis. And one problem it's facing is that there are more educated Greeks than there are jobs to give them. Here's Jeanette Newman.
2: This is a peaceful stretch of green on the outskirts of central Athens. It's the site of one of the Western world's first institutions of higher learning, Plato's Academy. Now, it's a park where neighbors walk their dogs. Marble slabs from Plato's time lie scattered in the grass. If it weren't for a tiny shack of a museum built a couple of years ago, people would have no idea that this place was home to a forefather of the modern-day university. But in Plato's homeland, the modern university system has become somewhat antiquated, out of step with the challenges facing present-day Greece. Here in Greece and many other countries, enrollment in higher education has shot up over the past several decades. Many parents and their children equate more studies with more job opportunities. But the number of young workers with graduate studies has outpaced the number of jobs that require those degrees. The mismatch is particularly acute in Southern European countries such as Greece. Which are still recovering from the region's devastating economic crisis. That's led to a problem that academics have given the somewhat bewildering name overeducation.
1: Overeducation is described as a situation whereby individuals are employed in a job where the level of education required either to get or to perform that job in question is below the level of education held by that worker. So an example would be a graduate in a non-graduate job, such as perhaps a waiter or a bartender.
2: That's Adele Whelan, a researcher at the Economic and Social Research Institute in Ireland. The word over-education sounds like it's judging you for getting that PhD in 19th century comparative French literature. It's not, we'll leave that to your friends. But the issue does tend to be overlooked by policymakers. I'm Konstantinos
3: Pouliakas. Uh, I'm an expert specializing in issues
2: of uh, vocational education and training. Konstantinos Pouliakas thinks he knows why. He studied the topic at the European Center for the Development of Vocational Training. That's an agency based in his native Greece. He estimates that as many as 4 in 10 young Greeks with a university degree could be overeducated, meaning they work in a job that doesn't require that degree.
3: There was a long period where even mentioning the term overeducation was uh, was something that was frowned upon. If you if you're saying that overeducation is a problem, there's a fear that um, you know some families, some young people may interpret that as basically saying you know you shouldn't be pursuing more education, uh, or that getting a higher degree may be useless.
2: In fact, workers who have an advanced degree are, overall, better off in terms of employment rates than those without one. They also make an economy more productive and innovative. But overeducation still has a cost. Let's say you have an MBA, but you work in a job that doesn't require an MBA. You will earn on average around 14% less than someone who is required to have an MBA in her job. She's matched. Now, you will still earn more than someone in your company who has less education than you do. You will earn more than a colleague who has, for instance, a bachelor's degree compared to your MBA. But overeducated workers tend to feel that their skills and studies aren't being put to use.
1: Individuals who are overeducated have lower levels of job satisfaction. And what happens in terms of this is that individuals who have lower levels of job satisfaction, they are much more likely to move jobs. And there's costs to the firm associated with this, costs to the individual and costs to the firm.
2: Greece provides an extreme example that illustrates how overeducated workers are more likely to jump from job to job. During the past decade, as Greece's economic crisis deepened, an estimated 400,000 Greeks with a university degree or higher left the country. A massive brain drain. Even before the crisis, Greek universities had been pumping out graduates at a rate that's out of whack with the demand for those higher degrees. Their universities aren't good at preparing them for the job market. And apprenticeships aren't as institutionalized in Greece as in other European countries. Pouliakas, the Greek over-education expert says the crisis also laid bare other deep-seated problems. Many Greeks say job offers are based more on personal connections than professional merit. It can also be hard to lay off underperforming workers. In a healthier economy, workers would have greater opportunities to find a job that matches with their degree.
3: And he wouldn't have incentives or she wouldn't have incentives to go outside of the country to manage to get these opportunities. So, in a sense, the overeducation and the brain drain phenomenon are interlinked in my in my view.
2: Ironically, the exodus of so many highly skilled workers has created a problem for the Greek economy—a lack of qualified workers that's getting in the way of the country's nascent economic recovery. To address the shortfall, the Greek government has launched an initiative with a curious but catchy name. It's called Rebrain Greece. <laughs> That's a Greek government official speaking at a conference in Athens in early December. Hundreds of people had gathered, buzzing with ideas about how to bring brains back to Greece. At the conference, Greece's center-right government announced details of its rebrain plan. Officials are offering salaries of around 3,000 euros per month, or about $3,300. They are offering it to Greeks who return from abroad and take vacant, technical jobs that companies are already having a hard time filling. The Greek government will pay about two-thirds of that. The company that employs the returnee will pay the rest. Officials base this salary on an analysis of what mid-level Greeks, ages 28 to 40, are already earning in major European cities. The government will initially target a group of about 500 Greeks who will receive the subsidized salaries for two years. Non-Greeks can also apply, but they are required to speak Greek so that they can work more efficiently. Other countries that suffered brain drains are also trying something similar. Portugal launched a program in July to give as much as 6,500 euros to Portuguese who return home. Spain subsidizes the salaries of some scientists who come home. Those countries, as well as Greece, are also facing rapidly aging populations. That adds an additional urgency to bring back younger workers. Dimitris Panopoulos, one of the economists at the Greek labor ministry working on the ReBrain project, told me at the conference that the program is overdue.
3: This is the first public initiative,
2: I mean governmental initiative, targeting directly to the people living abroad. This is the first one. Panopoulos himself has felt the cost of Greece's brain drain. Several years ago, Panopoulos did his MBA in Greece with a group of five friends.
3: The only one stayed in Greece was me. The other five left.
2: As a labor economist and data analyst, Panopoulos says the numbers show that he, like his friends... Probably should have left Greece in search of better opportunities, too.
3: A logical, uh, some logical people would go, and the data showed that you should. Do, but, but okay, if everybody leaves the, the ship, somebody
2: should stay. I don't know. Panopoulos says he knows that it's one thing to bring talented Greeks home to urgently fill some job vacancies, it's another thing to keep them here. And it's also a challenge to keep young, graduating Greeks from leaving in the first place. That's why the government is also trying to foster the conditions to create better jobs in Greece. That would help encourage qualified workers to return on their own. And it would also ensure that there are worthwhile positions for the overeducated who've remained in the country. Officials are trying to streamline bureaucracy. They are considering cutting the cost to hire workers. Also, they are providing financial incentives to companies that are creating jobs, such as in software engineering. Otherwise, well-educated Greeks who return could slip once again into the vicious cycle of over-education, getting trapped in jobs that don't match their qualifications.
3: If you don't have adequate incentives for, um, you know, a lot of new and high-skilled jobs being created in the economy, and you can only do this by investing in dynamic sectors of the economy, ensuring that you have entrepreneurship within your economy, if you don't have that part of the equation, you may still end up having a high incidence of overeducation. You may still end up seeing a high share of your graduate labor force working in jobs where they would be considered to be non-graduate, lower-level jobs.
2: Government officials talk a lot about the lack of skilled workers and how graduates need to do a better job preparing for the coming robot replacement revolution. As the case of Greece shows, though, there's talent already out there. So countries also need to make sure their economies are creating jobs suited to those workers' skills. Let's call it a good match. For Bloomberg News, I'm Jeanette Newman.
0: We're going to talk more about education and the economy next week with a report looking at education policy from the standpoint of a single U.S. state, Maryland. But right now, I'm going to catch up with DC-based Federal Reserve reporter Chris Condon on the annual meeting of the American Economic Association, which he's just back from. I think this year it was in in San Diego. Chris, that is a a massive gathering of the American Economic Fraternity. Uh, Lots of sort of academic stuff that happens there, people delivering their their papers and their research, but also some pretty... um, big figures in the world of economics. Tell me what the big themes were this year and the sort of highlights for you.
4: Sure. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a boundless experience with uh, papers and panels on every imaginable topic under the economic sun. Disneyland um,
0: for economic <laughs> geeks. It is. I would you say. pick
4: your favorite ride and you go. <laughs> <laughs> pluck down your ticket and you go for that one. Um, and it was a bit of a, s- a slow start to sort of gathering some sort of recognizable theme, but it really. Um, kind of exploded on Sunday morning, the last day of the conference when we had two star packed panels, uh, one talking about the the concept of japanification that is, is the us. and Europe headed for uh, a phenomenon as we've seen in Japan, with very long term low interest rates and low inflation and getting stuck there. Uh, followed immediately by a panel of very senior, central bankers from around the world, from major central banks, um, talking about that topic as well and what lessons they've learned from the crisis, Uh, a lot of talk about inflation, and through all of it, a lot of talk about fiscal policy. Uh, In other words, what central bankers cannot do. um, Are they running out of ammunition and and who must ride to the rescue? Um, So that's really where it kind of all focused at on the last day of the conference.
0: I mean, I noticed it's been a theme uh, since then as well because the, uh, the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney has also talked, uh, one of his sort of final interviews before he leaves office, he's talked about central banks kind of running out of tools um, to respond to shocks. I mean, it's something we've talked about quite a lot. I mean, Larry Summers has been sort of talking this up for, for a while, but do you think it had reached another another level or is it just that more people now agree that it's, that it's true that we're in what he would call a kind of liquidity trap where when you, you know, you pu- push interest rates mm-hmm. down, but you're you're pushing on the famously on a piece of string, you're not able to get the money yes. into the economy and get the get the economy moving. Uh, do you think there's more people who kind of agree with that view now? Or is it just that?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the Larry's idea of secular stagnation has moved beyond the stage of debate. It is very widely accepted now. And, and now the debate is w- what we do about it and who must do that action and let's remember too when we talk about imploring fiscal policymakers to act in a certain way central bankers have to be very cautious um, it's not really in the best interest of say the Federal Reserve to lecture Congress about what its job should be when of course Congress is the, is the authority that grants the central bank its own independence, so it's a touchy thing to go around talking about what, you know, what Congress is doing wrong and what they should do. But more and more, central bankers are dropping that caution slowly and imploring legislators around the world. And Mario Draghi, you know he has done that. Uh, in the U.S., they're doing it more and more. In Japan, they're, they're a bit further along that stage. Um, in, in trying to get uh, um, taxing and spending policies, uh, and in some cases coordinated with monetary policy, working in a way that will help not only counteract, say, the next drop in demand, the next recession, but also help lift us out of this, this rut we're stuck in of very low growth, low trend growth, low inflation, low productivity. Um, so, yes, the, the urgency is rising. The volume of those arguments has risen, I think.
0: And we've got, uh, I know that Christine Lagarde, as she comes into the Europe, now in the European Central Bank, uh, has got to navigate that now. And she says, I heard her resist uh, the notion that Europe was facing Japanification, but she too is going to face this dilemma about how much to push the fiscal argument with european governments i guess the assumption is she will be able to push it a bit more because of her close relationship having previously been a finance minister but it's funny because you go uh, all the talk of japanification which used to be quite an obscure term has now become more more mainstream um if you go to japan of course it feels like the sort of barely one percent growth they've had there has actually served them reasonably well they don't it doesn't feel like A super depressed economy, but they have it's got a shrinking labour force um, Mm -hmm, and a much mm -hmm. more extreme demographic uh, ageing issue than either even than Europe and certainly than the US. I Mm. always it would certainly cause much more of a fuss, I think, and be much more of a problem politically uh, in the US if you had that kind of one percent growth there. Uh, I did mention uh, earlier that as well as these sort of blockbuster sessions with central bankers, there's lots of economists on the edges of these AEA meetings uh, talking about their research, and it can be pretty interesting. Which, one caught, which was your sort of favorite economic paper that caught your eye, Chris?
4: I would have to point to the paper written by Eric Brynjolfsson. He's a professor at MIT, along with, uh, I think it was four other co-authors, and they attack the problem that economists face in measuring GDP in an age when new technologies have produced so many new free, or at least in terms of money, free goods and services. Now, GDP, as you know, Stephanie, is, is based on the costs of goods and services. So if something is free, then you can't add it to GDP, and, and for the same reason, you can't add it to measures of productivity. That creates a huge problem for economists, and, and, and GDP is further supposed to be a rough proxy for measuring overall welfare in our society. So how do we know that whether our, our lives are being enriched in some way? by these new technologies if the price tag is zero. So Brynjolfsson came up with a very interesting uh, set of experiments in which they asked groups of people, um, would you be willing to give up, say, Facebook for a month for $50? And they asked different subgroups, different amounts of money, and they ended up coming uh, for for US internet users. They came to a median valuation of a, something around $42 a month for Facebook. So now they have a dollar figure they could assign to Facebook and they created an alternative uh, sort of index of GDP and, and found that um, by some estimates if you, if you did it this way, Facebook could reasonably add up to about uh, 0.11 percentage points to GDP within this index. So that's that's quite a, an extraordinary amount, really, for one product. And you, you could apply this to many other things, perhaps more practically to things like uh, GPS mapping services, which really do have a utility, help us be more productive. And so that kind of points the way, I'm sure there'll be a lot more work on this, it points economists in a direction where they might be able to better measure how these new, and quote-unquote free technologies are actually contributing to the economy and contributing to productivity.
0: That's very interesting. I suspect there'll be some people who have my thought of, you know, how much would uh, would I pay someone to take Facebook away from me and take some of these other... <laughs> but, I mean, it's a more serious point, actually. Although they you, you might find that kind of addition of sort of hidden consumer welfare or hidden GDP, if you like, from the value people put on Facebook. But if it is getting in the way of people's productivity uh, day to day, then there could be hidden costs in there uh, as well. So I I suspect that the debate will go back and forth on this, but it will certainly be grist to the mill of people who say, we are not measuring um, what matters in the economy uh, today. Chris Condon, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more brilliant insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more people. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter, or you can also find me on at My Stephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Jeanette Newman. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Laman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks this week to Ziad Daoud, Chris Condon and Andrew Atkinson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.